0: Very spooky.
1: Hello, spooky people. Hey, spooky booches This is Two Girls One Ghost. Two girls. And we are your ghostesses, that is Corinne, whose birthday we are celebrating yet again in this episode because she deserves it. It's not a one-day birthday this year, it's a whole two-week birthday. As it should be. This year needs some more love. Everyone needs a little extra love this year.
0: Well, we kind of cheated the system by saying that my birthday was going to be two weeks because really it was an Encounters episode that fell close to my birthday, mm-hmm. but I still wanted to pick a topic. Of course.
1: That's why I get two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And also you're a very special human and I couldn't do this without you. So technically you get every week. Well, I'm stoked that we get to share August together.
0: All of our big moments in our friendship happen in August. Both of our birthdays are in August. We started the podcast in August. Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm pretty sure we met the very first time in August because didn't we start college like the very last week of August? We moved in August 26th, I remember, because it was my birthday and my mom bought me a fifth of vodka and I had no one to drink it with.
0: Well, then you met me about four days later and you suddenly had <laughs> someone to drink the vodka with you. <laughs> oh yeah, did I ever. So August is really
1: big for us. Yeah, we hold August very near and dear to our heart. I have a quick update for our listeners and people who have bought merch in the past two months and will continue to buy merch moving forward. Our fulfillment site is having a backlog just in terms of filling orders and then getting them to ship and send to you. So please continue to email us if you want updates. But like this is the update. We it's hard for us to know when you will get it. And we apologize. A huge inconvenience, I understand. But yeah, so if you're going to order merch, just be aware that there probably will be a delay. Not only is our fulfillment site having backlogs, but like UPS, FedEx, and DHL, all these delivery companies are also having some backlogs.
0: And in addition to that, all of the merch that we have is printed and built and created once you order it. So Mm -hmm. there's a chance if you order more than one item that you might get one item in a week and the next item seven weeks later. It's all really dependent on which fulfillment site it gets sent to because we use, we don't do it ourselves,
1: unfortunately. We don't have the ability. <laughs> I'd love to be that creative and crafty. But also our tiny little apartments couldn't really accommodate that. No, not at <laughs> all. I hardly have room for the recording equipment, so. If I just like have to tell Nick, Nick, I'm so sorry, but you have to move out because we. I need to bring a t-shirt printing I, Need the it's extra probably space. not a printing press, but that's what I'm going to call it. Um, and uh, sorry. So, we yeah. Just laying on your side here. of the closet. It's needed for other things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I have a, a feel good show that was recommended to me by our good friend Marissa. Oh, I feel bad recommending it now because it's literally been around for like 22 seasons. So super late to the game here. Wait, what show? It is called Escape to the Country. And it is basically just a house hunting show that is in just more rural areas of the UK. It's on Amazon Prime, or at least that's where I'm watching it. And it is just so lovely because there are these quaint little towns. It's just the landscape is moody. They always have like one bar that everybody goes to. And they're just looking at all these beautiful little cottages. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. The countryside.
1: That's delightful. It's lovely. 655 episodes. I
0: felt like I cheated because the very first episode that I watched was the guys from England, but the woman was from uh, like Pennsylvania or like New Jersey or something. And I was like, oh, of course I clicked the one with the American. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a feel good. So if you're scared ever after listening to any of our episodes or just want to think about other quaint little spaces beyond the f- Few walls of your own apartment or home,
1: escape to the countryside. I have a less heartwarming show. Some would call it Dark Show (laughs) because the name of it is Dark and it's on Netflix. And I watched the first season a while back when it first came out, but then maybe I was living under a hole. I don't know. Under a hole, under a rock in a hole, one of the two. Just combined them for some reason. But I just somehow didn't realize that two more seasons came out. And so now there are three seasons on Netflix. It's a German show. So I highly recommend if you do want to watch it, you watch it in German with English subtitles because that's how it's meant to be watched. And dubbed things sometimes bother me. But it is so good and so complex. Very, very dark. So it's aptly named. It deals with time travel and doppelgangers and... There are so many different timelines and all these characters and you see them as kids and then like they travel through time and then they grow up in the timelines and wrong timelines. It's so fascinating. And truly, it blows my mind. Whoever created the show, I'm sorry, I don't, I could look it up, but the creators of the show and the writers of the show must be geniuses because the way that they talk about time travel is brilliant.
0: This is starting to seem really familiar to me and i don't know if i just like either watched something that was similar enough or if maybe i just added it to my queue because you previously told me about it and that's why i'm it's possible you it's did because
1: i feel like i watched the first season probably three years ago now i ended up re-watching some of it just to remind myself of the characters because there's so many of them but now i'm on season two and i cannot stop watching like i'm just Looking forward to the end of every workday just so I could start watching Dark. Ooh, okay.
0: I'm going to add that to my, well, it's already on my list, but I'm going to move it up to the next thing I watch. Well, I'll watch an episode of this and then I'll end the evening with a feel
1: good of Escape to the Country. That's great. Great, great plan. I'll probably do the opposite. Okay. Well, that's telling of the difference between (laughs) you and I. (laughs) I embrace the darkness. You are the darkness. I am the darkness. (laughs) Just an update, as we said last week, Corinne for her birthday is going to do the, what's his name? Brian Weiss? Brian Weiss. Thing, Past but life regression. She will update us next episode because we recorded these two.
0: Back to back. And I'm planning on
1: doing it on my birthday. I'm going to write down my theories and fold it up in a piece of paper and open it and try to see if I guessed anything right when you okay. tell me about it. I do wonder if any so I, I when I was 16
0: I went and had a past life reading which I told you about it was in yes. Santa Cruz at that one bookstore that doesn't exist anymore
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the woman was so great and she kept her eyes closed the entire time everything she said for my reading in comparison to my friend Olivia's reading was just so spot on and she didn't have any clues or any context clues or anything because we weren't with our parents like we were with her older sister mm-hmm. and in a state we didn't live in and had rarely been to if at all. And she kept her eyes closed the whole time and she hit on all the different parts of our personality. And me and Olivia were very, very different as well. We were really great friends, but the way we grew up, our family dynamics, our interests, our disposition, our personality, outgoing versus introvert, everything about us was like different. And she hit on all of that. And then not only did she do that, but in her past life reading for both of us, it was perfect for our two differing personalities it made a lot of sense. And so I'm wondering if any of the past lives that she had told me about will present themselves.
1: I can't wait to find out.
0: Yeah. Because I would think that in a past life reading, perhaps you do have more dominant past lives that come forward. And if there's a dominant past life, don't you think that that one's more likely to probably
1: reappear again and present itself? 100%. Past Hmm. lives are so, so, so fascinating. And also yeah. if you could meet and or learn of multiples and just see how your soul has progressed over many lives and just like trying to understand the patterns and like what you learn from one life and you bring into the next, I think would be so cool and fascinating. I know.
0: Ooh. I'm Ooh. also curious because I have some moments in my life of like deja vu where I'm like I shouldn't say deja vu but more of like a false memory where I'll be somewhere and I'll be like hey remember how this happened and this and I have all these details and can describe the people we were with I have two places that that's happened to me in my life both places have been confirmed for me in my present life having never been there my parents were not there they're like this is a made-up story what are you talking about And I wonder if I'll get any bit of answers for those two spots as well.
1: What were they again? Was Athens or Greece something like that? Oh, okay. So in my past life reading
0: the two lives that came forward, one, I don't remember where it was, but it was somewhere, I think in like the Middle East area or Eastern Europe. I don't remember. Hmm. Somewhere over there. And I was a sex worker Hmm. and pretty successful and really enjoyed using the shell that I was given to succeed money-wise. So proud of your past life. Good for her. Powerful. And then another life that had come through was I was a male athlete in ancient Greece. So like an Olympian. Wait, cool. Yes. But then my two memories, I have one memory of, (laughs) I don't know how I would ever know that this, how I'd figure out who I was, but my one memory is over here somewhere in New England. There is a railroad and then there's these two gates. And when I passed by it with my parents in the car, I was like, oh my gosh, remember when we saw that guy die and we were all standing outside and he biked into the fence and he di- Like I just had all of these descriptors of watching someone die right there by the railroad because he ran into the fence with his bike, but that never happened apparently. And then my other memory was walking late at night on a dirt trail in the Northeast along this one road. That now a highway goes near, mm-hmm. and looking up at the stars and like following the stars. And I was with a few people and I was walking at the front with one other person. And so I'm wondering if I was
1: maybe journeying from the south to the north. That's kind of cool. I also wonder if that first one could have been a memory that, or like it wasn't your memory or a past life's memory, but. Such an intense memory that happened there that it was just yeah. given to you.
0: Yeah. It's like stained on the land and then I just picked up on the energy. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I mean, I'll let you I'll let you know what happens. I hope something happens. I hope I don't come back and be like, yeah, my mind was racing. I'm really not good at meditation. <laughs> like, I could not. I thought about mac and cheese. I thought about Hamilton. I thought about Bigfoot. Like nothing happened.
1: You should try to meditate a few days leading up to it, like each day. Just slowly get yourself into that so that when you do actually do it, then you're kind of prepared. That's a good idea. I'm going to have to focus really hard on staying awake too,
0: because my other problem is that I have the Calm app Mm. and I use it every night to go to bed now. So oftentimes I'll do the storytelling, but a good amount of the time I also do the meditation. Mm -hmm. And so I think I've almost screwed myself over in that way, because instead of listening to the words, I'll listen to like the first like minute and then I'll be asleep because it'll be like, let go. There's nothing holding you back. And I'm like, bleh, asleep. (laughs) You'll get there. Yeah. I can't wait. We'll report back. Yeah.
1: Okay, you tell us what we're doing because
0: it's your episode. (laughs) Well, Sabrina's going to start us off with a little bit of background and whatnot. But a few episodes ago, I mentioned Men in Black, and then I was like, wait, we need to do an episode on this. And when Sabrina texted me saying, what do you want to do for your super special birthday episode? I was like, Men in Black, please. We haven't done it. And it just seems so crazy that we've gone three years without doing it. So here we are.
1: We're doing it. We're doing it. The Men in Black. 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 And as many of you probably know, we're not talking about the massive movie franchise starring Will Smith. We are talking about the ominous, threatening, possibly alien beings that appear after UFO encounters. Those Men in Black. What they are and who they are is very unclear. Some say that they are agents belonging to a secret government agency tasked with keeping the existence of aliens a secret from the public. Or others believe that they are alien species themselves, which it's hard to know one way or another which one they actually are. Personally, I could see it both ways because I believe that the government knows aliens exist and that they would do everything they can to keep the information from the public. And I also think government powers believe that admitting to their existence will send the world into a state of panic and fear. Because if we got the knowledge that aliens actually existed, I feel like the public would be like, oh my God, aliens? What do they want? Why are they coming here? Ah, they're trying to take over Earth and kill all of us humans. So the government keeps it secret. So it makes sense that the men in black could be a government agency keeping these secrets from us. But... Then I also do believe they could be aliens themselves because there are stories of them appearing in bedrooms in the middle of the night, having ability to actually wipe your memory, which is a common theme in alien abduction stories too. So like there's connections and they've been known to behave very strangely, kind of like mimicking human behavior. I don't know. I see both sides. Krin, do you have a preference? Do you think they're one way or the other? I think
0: that they are extraterrestrial beings that may or may not be in communication with the different governments around the world, but really act autonomously and in disguise. And... They're working together. I think that we as citizens need to all promise one another that we're not going to freak out so that they can feel comfortable telling us that they're real. And that's never going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. Sorry to ruin your birthday dreams, but... Everyone's like promising and they have their fingers crossed and their toes crossed and they're like, and not actually so
1: I'm allowed to freak out. <laughs> so I'm like, No. Yeah. We're all welcome to our own opinions and yes. And people freak out at little things. So I imagine they'd freak out at aliens. I understand. But I vote for them to be paranormal. I totally see that. And I I like the idea of them working together with government agencies.
0: Yeah. If they even are, some part of me thinks that maybe they're just doing what they do anyway. And the government basically just has to follow what the men in black say. Yeah. It might not be working together. It might just be following orders.
1: (laughs) It's so interesting because I feel like so many alien movies in history have painted aliens as like monsters coming to kill humans. And that's probably painted them in such a bad way. But there's also E.T. I know you're terrified of E.T., but if you watch to the end, E.T. is a good alien. And what's that movie, um, Not Annihilation, the other one with, is it Amy Adams? Arrival. That's a great example. Yeah, they were trying to save humankind.
0: There's also that movie with the the dog that's an alien. I forget what it's called. I don't know. But the dog comes down on a meteor and then he meets his, like, Oh, I know. human friends like max or something and then they became best friends good boy see there are good aliens out
1: there but these men in black you don't want to really meet because they don't seem too fun they're very straight edge they're straight to business and what they want to do is make sure that you don't remember what you saw so if you see a ufo men dressed in black suits will appear sometimes in a group of three, sometimes alone, and they will threaten you. They will tell you things about you that like no one ever, no one else ever knew. And it's, it's crazy, but you don't want to deal with them. They are also often associated with the black helicopter. I think Corinne, you read a story in Encounters 91, where they saw a black helicopter above the Superstition Mountains and kind of right around the time that they saw a UFO or or supposed UFO. And people believe that men in black are associated with these black helicopters and that they're covering things up.
0: Yeah. And to add to that, it's usually, I don't know if you're going to go into this detail, but from what I have seen from watching ancient aliens (laughs) and all of those shows, is that oftentimes there are these military looking black helicopters that are unmarked And that are seemingly silent and often are accompanying or seen accompanying UFOs and spacecrafts and whatnot.
1: Are they showing up to deliver men in black to the site to like white people's memories? Or are they being an escort for the UFOs? Who knows? I don't know, but they're pretty much hiding in plain sight. Yeah. And there are a lot of conspiracies about black helicopters if you want to get in that. But that is not this episode. This episode is men in black. We don't know much about them, but we can trace them back to 1947, and according to history.com, the origin of men in black started with a man, a boy, and a dog on a boat in the incident called the Maury Island Incident. So, it's June 21st, 1947, and a man named Harold Dahl was on a conservation mission in the Maury Island Harbor, which is in Washington, when all of a sudden he saw six donut-shaped objects in the sky above his boat. And Harold had no idea what he was looking at, but before he could make any assumptions, one of these donut-shaped objects spiraled out of the sky coming closer to his boat. And at that moment, Harold had a camera and he was just like, I'm going to try and take a few photos. So he snapped away real quick. But then as he was taking the picture, he realized that something else was falling out of the sky with the strange aircraft. It was a strange lava-like liquid, which fell and hit the boat with intense force like a metal would and it was falling out of the sky at high velocity it was plummeting towards him and it hit Harold's boat and then rained down on him and his son and their family dog and Harold's arm was like badly hurt and injured in the incident but he was able to protect his son so his son went unharmed but unfortunately and very very tragically and I am very sorry that on all day's of the year, I have to tell this story, Corinne. But unfortunately, the family dog did not survive. No. So Harold Harold rushes his son back to the harbor and you know, he's trying to gather his thoughts. Like, what happened? What did we just see? What was this thing that fell out of the sky? My dog is dead. You know, I mean, I can't even imagine the thoughts that he's processing and how he's able to tell his son what happened. So he decides to go to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman, and he tells Chrisman of the encounter. As Harold's explaining the encounter and what happened, Fred's kind of, you know, nodding along, but he's very skeptical and he doesn't believe in aliens, doesn't really believe in the paranormal. He's not a phantom if he were around today. He was just like, ah, Harold, I like you don't really believe what you're saying. But Harold did have injuries. His, his arm was injured. And the dog was dead. So being a good supervisor, Fred was like, okay, Harold, I will go out to the point that you said your boat was hit. I'll go take a look for myself. But Fred wasn't like, he wasn't going out there convinced he was going to see anything. He was more just doing it as a favor, trying to play his role as a supervisor. And so he goes, Harold, you go home, you take care of your family, do what you need to do. I myself will go take a look and check out what you saw. So Fred goes out, Harold goes home, Fred goes out on his boat and goes to the spot that Harold described. And just then up in the sky, Fred too spotted a strange donut shaped object in the sky and he was shocked. So Fred returns to the harbor, you know, was processing it, didn't really want to say anything to Harold yet because, you know, as a skeptic, sometimes it's hard to admit to what you saw. So Fred keeps it to himself. Meanwhile, Harold is taking care of his family and he mentions it to his wife and his wife is shocked and they're processing the loss of their dog. And it's this whole thing. They end up saying like, let's deal with this tomorrow. Let's all go to sleep. So the next day, Harold Dahl was just moseying about out on a walk when a man dressed in a black suit approached him. And he looks at Dahl very seriously and he's like, I need to speak with you about what you saw yesterday. And Obviously, as anyone would be, Dahl was very unsettled and freaked out by this experience and who this man was. It was a complete stranger just walking up to him, dressed very impeccably for, you know, the middle of the summer. Who is this guy? I've never seen him before. This man kind of didn't look like the type of person you mess with or ignore. So Harold stuck with a guy and the guy pulls him into a diner and sits down with him. The man in black is just talking to Harold and kind of exchanging pleasantries and then all of a sudden the conversation shifts and this man dressed in black looks at Dahl and goes, I know what you witnessed yesterday. And then he continues to explain it in extraordinary detail and Dahl was flabbergasted. How could this well-dressed complete stranger know what he had experienced when he hadn't told anyone else aside from Fred? And even then he hadn't told Fred every single detail because he was so overwhelmed in the chaos of what had happened and and in the shock of it. And so this man doesn't explain to Harold how he knew what he knew, only that he knows much more about the experience than Harold even knew. And he goes on to say that he knows much more about Harold than Harold even knows. And after a brief moment of the two men just staring at one another because Harold is in complete disbelief, and probably frightened, the man in black leans in closer to Harold. His eyes narrowed and he spoke in a very menacing tone, very seriously, and says, never speak of this experience to anyone or bad things will happen to you. And the man got up from the booth and left. Harold was obviously very fearful and frightful of this encounter. And he just was like, okay, well, Clearly, I can't talk about it. I don't want to mess with this guy. I don't know who he is, but he knows so much about my life. He knows so much about my experience. He meant business. I can't talk about it. So he goes home, goes to work the next day. And that is when Fred Chrisman finally approaches Harold and tells Harold of his own experience and tells him that when he went out there in the harbor that night, he too saw a donut shaped saucer or well, the word saucer apparently didn't exist then. So a object in the sky. He was like, Harold, we have to tell the press. We have to tell people what we saw. But Harold, you know, has the the words of the man in black echoing in his mind. If you tell, bad things will happen. If you tell, bad things will happen. So, of course, Harold's like, I can't, Fred, I can't do that. But he doesn't know how to tell Fred that this man threatened him. And eventually, Fred convinces Harold to go to the press and tell their encounter. I don't know how he convinced him, but he did. So Harold and Fred reached out to a Chicago magazine in an attempt to sell their story. And the editor of the Chicago magazine was curious, but wanted to verify the story before agreeing to publish it. So the magazine editor reached out to a man named Kenneth Arnold, who was a pilot who witnessed a UFO only a few days after Fred and Harold had. So Fred and Harold had seen the saucers and these objects in the sky on June 21st, and this man... Kenneth Arnold had seen one June 24th and his story had kind of become a sensation known around the world because uh, Kenneth Arnold was a pilot and he was flying a plane when he saw an object in the sky and then very immediately went and told the world about it. Arnold agreed to help verify the account and so he and two Army A-2 intelligence agents went to Washington to speak with Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman. And this is where things get so interesting, Corinne and listeners. It's so fascinating. Okay, so Arnold and these two agents go to Tacoma, Washington and begin having clandestine meetings in secret at the Winthrop Hotel with Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman. So it's like secret organization to the max, which is my dream. Just want to be invited to one meeting, please. In the meetings... They exchange stories and experiences, and in one meeting, Harold produced remnants from the debris that fell on his boat, this white lava, liquid lava that he was hit by that ended up killing his dog. He had a fragment of it. And so he exchanges it and gives it to Arnold and the two military agents and told them of this ominous encounter with a man in black and how he was afraid of what the man meant by, if you tell anyone, bad things will happen. Everyone kind of in this meeting at the Winthrop Hotel were all convinced that they were being careful. They were keeping this these meetings very secret so no one could possibly know what they were discussing. So they all kind of reassured Harold. And then the two army men had to leave for an Air Force Day program, but decided to take the fragments with them to their base to do a technical analysis to try to figure out what the fragments were and what the chemical was. The two men boarded their plane with the debris and then tragedy struck. So shortly after they took off, the plane crashed and killed the two army officers. And there were two other passengers on board who were the only two who were able to parachute to safety. So the only two people who died in the crash were the two men who were privy to the secret meetings and were in possession of a possible alien object. So when this happens, our pal Harold Dahl was terrified because he's now convinced that what the man dressed in black was meaning when he said that bad things will happen was that people will die if you tell them about your experience. And this crash proved that to him. So my question is, if the men in black are government agents, are they really willing to kill their own to protect their secrets? And the reason I think this portion of the research that I did made me think that maybe the government does have something to do with the men in black, because... The government came out with a statement saying that the plane crash was caused by a burned exhaust stack, which in turn caused the left wing to catch fire. And then it like knocked off the tail of the plane. Mm -hmm. But UFO conspiracy theorists believe that it's a cover up and that the plane was shot out of the sky by some alien, maybe a black helicopter or by another spacecraft. We don't know. So shortly after this plane crashed out of the sky, Dahl and Chrisman came out and stated that their experience was a lie and that they made up the whole story and it wasn't real. But if you are threatened by a man dressed in a suit who tells you bad things will happen if you tell anyone about your experience, but you still tell people about your experience, and then two of those people that you told who are carrying a fragment that proves that you had that experience die in a plane accident that loses that fragment that could have proven your experience, I would for sure take back my story and say it was a lie. Wouldn't you? Oh my gosh. Yes. Because that's just self-preservation
0: right there. That is keeping yourself alive and safe.
1: And apparently even Harold Dahl's wife was like, you need to, you can't tell anyone about this. And then when he did, he was like, you need to take it back. Say it wasn't true. Say it wasn't true. Like Even she was terrified of it. And so after that, Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman remained silent, keeping their story to themselves until 1956, when a man named Gray Barker wrote the book, they knew too much about flying saucers and finally connected the experiences of the Maury Island incident to another incident of a man named Albert K. Bender, and finally introduced the concept of men in black to the public and to the world. (laughs) so good it's just like they're so men in black are so fascinating and i mean even after this the amount of i'm sure you'll get into it maybe but there were comic books that were written about men in black and then the movies were made and then you know i think once it becomes a public notion more people start coming out and be like i had an experience like this too and it becomes a more commonly known thing because if someone threatens you, you're probably going to keep that experience to yourself. Yeah. It doesn't take much for me to be quiet.
0: No. And just coincidence or not, if people who are more vocal and are more loud, whether it be with UFOs or anything, if something bad happens to them, it could have been a natural heart attack or, or something like that. But there's just raised suspicions and raised paranoia that you're going to be next, that you are going to be the target. Yes. You are going to be silenced. And so, of course,
1: of course you're nervous. And also when you become friends with you, Corinne, you start to buy into conspiracy theories because they're real. (laughs) It's not a conspiracy. It's an uncovered truth. I feel like we're uncovering it and I believe in it full heartedly now. (laughs) That's a great example
0: of someone who saw something that was relatively benign. It's not like he made contact with... Like, Harold didn't make contact with aliens. He just saw six saucers. Like, he could have gone and blabbed to the newspapers and done all this, but he didn't need to be scared into not talking. He could have just, I think another tactic that people could use or that men in black could use is just painting these people as untrustworthy, you know? Like, this person is crazy. This person doesn't know what they were talking about. Oh, we just released weather balloons. That's what it was. The sun was reflecting in such a way against the metal of the helicopter that was flying overhead, blah, blah, blah. There's so many things you could say that make it seem like it wasn't anything. Right. And as they do, they do do that. Yeah. It kind of blows my mind, just all of the different events and even the guy going up to him and being like, I know what you saw and gives all the details before he even was able to recount the story to anyone himself.
1: It's just like one of those things where instead of doing that, I'm just, and I'm putting this out into the universe because luckily this podcast goes out to everyone, obviously, or everyone has the ability to listen to it. Men in black, aliens, government. If you are listening, I feel like a real conspiracy theorist here. Instead of threatening people who experience aliens or UFO sightings, instead, why don't you... Welcome them into your secret organization and be like, congratulations, you know the truth. Yeah, what harm is going to come from that? I'm more likely to keep a secret if I know that I'm privy to this awesome secret society that no one else is in.
0: And let's be real, the people that are out there that are on TV, the people that are saying what happened to them and all this stuff and are being vocal, unfortunately, they are oftentimes viewed as... Just making it up or wanting attention or being a little crazy. So even if you did tell someone all the truth, if they go on and take to Facebook and talk in their community and whatnot, they're probably going to end up feeling super self-conscious about what happened to them because there's going to be a ton of people who don't believe them.
1: Yeah. It's also weird to me that like sometimes men in black show up and sometimes they don't. And sometimes people feel like their memory is wiped. And sometimes they don't. it's there's no real distinction. you know, there, It's not like you know what you're gonna get. It makes me wonder if perhaps some of it is like a
0: gentle ease of our society into understanding what else is out there. Like if they're just dropping little breadcrumbs and the amount of sightings of men in black and of paranormal creatures and of aliens, is going to increase because they're just like trying to ease us into being like,
1: hello, things exist outside of you. I would love if that were the case. I just don't believe it.
0: Right. We have no idea. And then another theory could be that they understand more of someone's own motives and soon to be actions better than we understand ourselves. Mm. And so perhaps they pick and choose who is going to be an actual threat to. Oh, that's a cool theory, right? I like that. Yeah. Which makes me feel a little insulted. That after I saw UFO,
1: no one came to my door. You don't think I have the power? No. Or they think that you're not going to go to the press because you believe in it and you believe that they exist. I'm just going to start a podcast. You're just going to start a podcast. (laughs) You're going to help make other people feel comfortable and believe aliens. True. I'm not out here screaming aliens are bad. I'm just <laughs> like,
0: yo. They're real. What's up? Give me all your tips and tricks. I'm trying to
1: make this life a little easier. <laughs> and I'm just here being like, abduct me. Take me for who I am. <laughs> okay. So the way that we split this episode up was that I was going to do the origin story of Men in Black. And then Corinne, I was going to do a graceful, beautiful handoff to Corinne. Yeah, you teed me up to talk about Albert K. Bender. Let's hear it. So this is a story of
0: Albert K. Bender and his encounter with Men in Black. So venturing back to the very beginning of Albert's life, let's learn a little bit about this guy, please. Albert was born in Pennsylvania back in 1921, and growing up, he had a few standout interests. He loved to collect unique things. He was a little collector. And to help him with this, he started writing letters to people all over the world. And when he was in high school, he started this and he wrote to people in Peru, England, Romania, Japan, all over the world. And through his letters, he built these friendships and he built these sort of like business relationships and they would send him coins and sand and other little tchotchkes from these specific countries. Mm -hmm. So Albert was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I'm a little collector. I also, though, have another interest, which is the supernatural. Yeah, he does. He does. We would be friends with him. We would. So he starts collecting all these items, not only from around the world, but also haunted things and things that reminded him of haunted houses. And he he liked haunted house-themed decor, and he'd put these items all over display in his room, and he would combine later his letter writing skills and his supernatural interests ...to create spook plays. So he was basically a horror writer, kind of like you, Sabrina. Fun. Albert was very social. He was very involved in his community. He was very outgoing. He had many friendships. He was involved in a ton of school organizations. And then after graduating from high school, he eventually went on to join the U.S. Army during World War II. And he was stationed at Fort George G. Meade as a dental technician. And then he was later transferred to Langley, Virginia... And then he became a clerk for the dental center. And also he became the editor for the army newspaper. So he was sharpening his skills as a writer. And so then eventually Albert, he makes his way to Bridgeport, Connecticut. And this is where Albert's interests would conflict with the interests of men in black. And this would be one of the earliest and one of the most infamous men in black encounters. So Moving to Bridgeport, Albert lived with his mom and his stepfather, and he worked as a chief timekeeper at a scissor manufacturing company. And while he didn't grow a scissor obsession, which is kind of surprising because I feel like he really leaned into a lot of the things he did, he did nod to his job as a timekeeper by putting 20 chiming clocks around his home that would chime every 15 minutes. That's a lot of chiming. That's a lot of chiming, and I'm sure visitors of the town were like, oh my gosh, this is such a cool space. Like, let's go visit the chiming house. But I'm sure, in contrast, the neighbors were like, this is not fun. This is not cute. But better to hear the bells outside than to see what Albert kept inside. Because his collection of trinkets and items grew to be a little bit darker and darker. So he was a collector, and over time, having his interests of the supernatural and horror, some of his collected items began to be things like shrunken heads and artwork and artifacts related to ghosts and monsters and witches and skulls and many of these things that he kept in the attic of his three-story home that he shared with his mom and stepdad. And to make things even darker, and this is why I freaking love him, he would play music to add to the atmosphere, and it was creepy music. It was like an OG Halloween soundtrack. It'd be thunder, it'd be hissing noises, it'd be crying, and he nicknamed the room the Chamber of
1: Horrors. Oh my gosh, so he had like a year-round haunted house.
0: He did!
1: He built himself a haunted house, and I just love it. That is very fun. We'd have so much fun with him, but we both leave like hanging out with him being like, I just never know when he's serious and when he's joking. I know. Like that's <laughs> the type of person I imagine he is.
0: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and also he kind of seems like the person where it's so great hanging out and like you can share all your interests. But then when you leave, you're like, well, I need to take a little bit of this cloak off. But he just can live in it all the time. Yeah, And then soon – His fascination with all things supernatural and horror really took a focus on aliens because when Albert was in his 20s, there was suddenly an influx of flying saucer sightings. And so a lot of this, I think, did have to do with the end of the Cold War and just raising suspicions of alien crafts, whether they be actual alien crafts or just another nation spying on us and all this. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah. And so raising suspicions across the nation, and Albert's in his 20s now, and there's an influx of flying saucer sightings all over the place. And so, of course, Albert's like, ooh, I am into this. Something strange is going on, and I'm going to use my charm, my communication skills, and my drive to do everything I can to get to the bottom of this. I feel like
1: you just channeled him so well. (laughs) You even like had a little bit of a twang. He could be coming through me right now. He could be your past life. Oh my God.
0: (gasps) No, wait, no. That can't. He died. He passed away in 2016. I was already alive.
1: (laughs) You got too excited. I got really excited.
0: (sighs) Not this time. Maybe next time. Yeah. He's all into aliens now and he's wanting to investigate. And so he forms one of the very first alien oriented organizations named the International Flying Saucer Bureau. Formed in 1952, they got to work straight away, and he started recruiting members, some of them quite reputable in their own fields, their non-alien-related fields, their careers. And in total, they were 600 people strong worldwide. So he collected people from all the different countries. He'd been already sending out letters to people and building relationships since he was in high school. So not a difficult task for this guy. So the group, they focused on studying these unidentified flying crafts, and while the group was headquartered in Albert's home in Connecticut, he would share his findings out with the other members through a quarterly publication called Space Review. And so you might be wondering, wow, what happened? Did they make contact? Like, what what did they do? What did this organization do? They did not make contact. But from the very beginning of his founding this organization, life for Albert Bender got a bit stranger. <gasps> He started to deal with some strange health issues. And he also started to become the target of strange phone calls. And to Albert, he said, also telepathic messages. And now some could argue, some could be like, okay, well, let's think about it. This guy, this weird clock guy, moves into this town and starts this organization, blasts out info about it. Of course, he's going to get some calls and he's going to be paranoid. But what's strange is that these calls and feelings didn't come right away. He, Started the organization. He'd been the bell guy in town. He'd been Albert, but all of the calls and all of the weirdness and all of the health issues didn't start until the state of Connecticut itself started having an increase of UFO sightings. Oh. And Albert could feel it. The energy was different. And he suddenly felt like he was being watched and he wasn't sure what was to come for him or for his fellow Connecticut residents. What did the aliens want? Why were there so many UFOs in this area all of a sudden? Many of them had been out West, but now suddenly in New England, there are UFOs. What? And then in November of 1952, so not long after he founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau, Albert decided, I'm going to have a night. I'm going to go to the movies. I'm going to enjoy a local flick. And so he heads to the local movie theater to enjoy his evening But then he notices that someone else in the theater is a bit off and this person is sitting behind him. This man's eyes seemed to glow in the dark and this man was fixated on Albert, studying him, watching him the entire time. And Albert was like, eh, this is a little spooky, but let's move on. And so he tries his best to ignore this man, but upon leaving the theater after the film, Albert is walking and he can sense that the man is following him down the dark streets. He'd turn and it would be like the shadow behind him that would disappear. Oh my God, that's so scary. So scary. So essentially Albert was being stalked on his way home. He eventually makes it home and he's safe that night, but it was clear to him that something was going on and he was being followed. On another night, late in the evening, Albert was walking home and he was on one of the main roads and suddenly he felt... As though he were hearing things, like telepathically, something or someone was trying to communicate with him. And then his body was lifted, and he was levitating in the street for a few moments. In the street? In the street. He was hearing noises, hearing voices, and his body lifted. And then suddenly, the noises stop, the force lets go of him, and he's dropped back to his feet. And so Albert's like, oh my God, what is happening? He makes it home that night, but then soon even his house isn't a safe space because the attic where he kept the majority of his things, his trinkets, his collections, his alien related paraphernalia, the attic began to smell like sulfur, which seems demonic. But Albert's like, "Mm, oh no, something bad is happening and we need to stop it. So now, just a year after starting the organization, he writes to his group through Space Review, declaring March 15th as World Contact Day. And this is a day that is meant to attempt contact with extraterrestrial beings through telepathic messages. And this day actually still exists. It's annual on March 15th. So on this day, you can focus your messages, focus your energy up to the sky, and telepathically communicate with extraterrestrials or try to. March 15th. March 15th. Putting it in my calendar, reoccurring yearly. (laughs) We can start doing this. So Albert writes to his group through Space Review and he asks them to memorize this message. And on this particular day, March 15th, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, they should silently recite this message and direct their energy to space. And this was the message. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth, we of IFSB wish to make contact with you. We are your friends and would like you to make an appearance here on Earth. Your presence before us will be welcomed with the utmost friendship. We will do all in our power to promote mutual understanding between your people and the people of Earth. Please come in peace and help us in our earthly problems. Give us some sign that you have received our message. Be responsible for creating a miracle here on our planet to wake up the ignorant ones to reality. Let us hear from you. We are your friends. And so together on that day at 6 p.m., everyone in their own homes, in their own spaces, with this message memorized, they looked up to space and they focused their energy and they pushed this message out into space. Did they make contact? We don't know. Activity did not cease, though. The sulfur did not go away. The feelings of paranoia did not go away. Albert's attic began to stink even more. There was a yellow mist that cloaked the room. And then something happened. And what it is, we don't know exactly. But Albert discovered something. And he took to his publication and he printed that the July issue of Space Review would hold a startling revelation and to prepare his readers But that issue would never be printed, and no one would ever really know what Albert was going to publish. Because in July of 1953, three men arrived at Albert Bender's home in Bridgeport, Connecticut. They were all dressed in black clothing, black suits, and were adorned with Homburg-style hats. They seemed odd, emotionless, robotic in their movement. And the men entered the home. They flashed credentials, showing Albert that they were representatives of a higher authority— And they asked him many questions about the International Flying Saucer Bureau. Oh, my gosh. They confiscated all copies of Space Review and telepathically communicated with Albert these instructions. Stop publishing. (gasps) They gave him a metal disc with instructions. And then suddenly Albert felt as if he was being transported, his soul, his whole body was being pulled in another direction. And whatever else they did or said in that moment, we don't know but it was enough for Albert Bender to be scared to death. He felt sick. He didn't eat for days. And he shut down the International Flying Saucer Bureau just a couple of years after starting it. His very last publication of the Space Review would read, The mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of this information, We have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to be very cautious. And Albert would continue to be visited by these men, the men in black, numerous times after the first visit. It wasn't just one visit. In the local library, Albert said that while he was viewing old microfilmed pages of Bridgeport Sunday Herald's looking for clues and looking for anything that had to do with men in black or aliens or flying saucers, etc., he was approached by a man that had threatened him, one of the men in black. And all over town, Albert still felt like he was being watched, he was being visited. He was reminded to be careful and to keep silent. And it's thought that Albert had info, that he had theories or evidence that the U.S. government was covering up the existence and knowledge of extraterrestrial crafts and the alien intelligences on board, and that he was going to publish these theories in Space Review. But then he was stopped, which again, like we were saying before, is a very similar story. We've heard many, many times those who know something are threatened, they're silenced, they're made to look untrustworthy or crazy. Some go missing altogether or are killed. And so for a long time, Albert was fearful and he believed that these three men who visited him must be some sort of special government officials. But after some time, after really taking in what happened to him and reflecting on it, he began to realize that they're not, that they couldn't be. There's yellow mist, there was a sulfur smell, there was telepathy, glowing eyes, strange stress and mannerisms. The men in black were not of this planet, and Albert, a once intelligent and courageous researcher, changed forever after that experience. He had frequent headaches, he often seemed on edge and frightened, and some of his future work and writing would be a bit more rambling and less coherent. He was anxious, he was terrified, he was traumatized, and he was trying to make sense of what he learned, and he just didn't know where to turn. And after the experience, though Albert kept quiet about a lot of things, part of him still felt compelled to share what he'd experienced with other UFO investigators. And he approached a few, but he was shut down. But eventually, his story was also told by Gray Barker in the book They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. So in this book, we learned that after the visitation from the Men in Black, Albert did not speak about the event for nine years. Nine years, this guy, who was so vocal and so communicative and so group-oriented and so enthusiastic, shut down and was quiet. Oh. And then in 1962, Albert wrote his own book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, to go into detail about what happened to him. And in Albert's book, he said that the three men from another planet came to visit him, their feet never touching the ground. In his book, he said, quote, they floated about a foot off the floor. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Homburg style. The eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashlight bulbs. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pains above my eyes became almost unbearable. And so these men in black, they questioned him about UFOs. They told him a bit about them as well. So not only Were they gathering information, but apparently they were seeming to give information, too. They were teaching him certain things, or at least giving him, crafting some sort of message to give him some sort of idea about what UFOs are. Yeah. And then they told him that their appearance was an illusion, and they took other bodies from Earth to disguise themselves, and that no one would believe him, and he should keep quiet. And then they used telepathy. They were intimidating. They were manipulative. They were everything that he'd never experienced before and probably couldn't imagine until that very moment. And so after publishing his autobiography, Albert moved from Bridgeport, Connecticut, settling in California where he managed a hotel. And he passed away at the age of 94 years old on March 29th, 2016. And up until his death, Albert still claimed to receive odd phone calls with no one on the other line. They're listening. They're listening. Oh, it, that's It's wild. It's this man who was just so full in, all in, had all the resources, all the connections, all the power and willpower to just keep going. But these men, the men in black, once they visited, he decided, I'm shutting down all interests that have to do with the macabre and the creepy and the supernatural and extraterrestrials. And I'm just going to stay silent. I'm going to move across the country
1: and I'm just going to manage my motel. I'm just so curious why they thought he was such a threat. I mean, I get it. He was running this organization, but like, yeah, it goes back to my question of why they choose some people and not others. I mean, if we think about it back in the day too, it's
0: not like in Albert's time, there was television like there is today or radio broadcasting like there is today. Like It wasn't as easy to get messages out there. And so for this one guy who's so determined to get to the root of things and uncover things and someone who acts so quickly, like he has an interest and then suddenly he's recruited 600 people in a very short span of time to join his organization. And he's blasting out the messages and everything he finds globally. It's not even in his state or in his town or just even in his nation. He's taking it everywhere. And so I think communication wise he did seem like a big threat
1: that's true
0: oh gosh i just feel so sad for him i know i really want to read his book now let's do it yeah i want to read that one and then the one gray barker's book they knew too much about flying saucers let's pitch those to our book club maybe we do two books next month yeah I feel like we're bad at participating in book club because we read it and then we talk about it for just a second on the podcast. And then I forgot to post it on our Facebook group saying, what did everyone think?
1: And then I also felt really bad because there is a TGOG book club Facebook group and you and I both were like, oh, we don't like whatever happened to that. And then we read Turn of the Key, or what did we read? Was that, no, not Turn of the Key. Was it Turn of the Key? Yeah, we read Turn of the Key. We read Turn of the Key, and we're like, that's the book club book of the month. But then I went to look at the book club page, and they've been active since the beginning. It's us who haven't been doing it. Oh, God. Okay, (laughs) pressure's
0: on. We need to be better about it. I need to be better about, like, Facebook
1: in general. Yeah, I know. Social media has been one of the hardest things in my life right now, just keeping up with it. It's a bit exhausting. It's one of the first things that you're tempted to run away from, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, okay. I'm so we're so sorry to the TGOG book clubbers. We will listen to you now. <laughs> we're not going to hijack any more book clubs, but
1: we do want to pitch these books cuz
0: we can pitch them. We can also read them on our own. We don't
1: have to That's true. Men in Black are so freaking interesting and weird and yeah, ominous. They really are. And you know what's so interesting, too, is
0: I don't even remember if we talked about this when we talked about Mothman. But after the Mothman sightings, the initial Mothman sightings. Yeah. There was an influx of men in black sightings all over that were going and intimidating witnesses, odd people just like going up to these houses, knocking on doors, visiting people in public, asking them about what they saw or attempting to get in contact with people. And just trying to intimidate them and figure out what exactly they saw. Scary. And it so reminds me of like the actual Men in Black kind of like, or sorry, not not the actual Men in Black. This is the actual Men in Black, but like the movie Men in Black. Yeah. I feel like there's so obviously so many borrowed storylines because it's inspired by Men in Black. And in the movie, not only do they have, or at least in the original Men in Black movie, they have an alien who wears a human's epidermis, their skin, just like- what Albert was saying men in black were talking about. Yeah. And then the men in black go around trying to interview people to figure out what they saw, not to necessarily intimidate them into backing away. I mean, half the time they erase their memory, but more to figure out like what other alien is here.
1: Right. Oh yeah. That's a weird thing to think of.
0: Yeah. There's not just one alien species that's out there that they're controlling everything. The men in black really could be this other sort of, International police force that is like, oh shit, everybody's, all these creatures are coming to Earth. And what the heck was that flying thing by the bridge? What if they
1: are the, there's an alien war going on and it's happening on Earth or Earth is safe? Like, you know, when you played games as a kid, it was like, I've been thinking the exact same thing. Earth is safety. Yes. You have to
0: run to the porch. Earth is safety.
1: Yeah. We cannot trust them. We can't trust anyone.
0: Or what if Earth is just like the, not safety, but like the lawless land. Like it's where you go to hide. I believe that for sure. It's like, ugh, really? They went to Earth? That shit show? Do we have to go there? Do we have to track them? Can we wait until they go to another planet? Wow.
1: Wow, 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 wow. I love men in black. Okay. I have a listener story. I was not able to find anything men in black related, so I went alien route. Which brings me to a plea that I have for our listeners. I know, well, I can't say I know, but I assume that there are more of you out there that have had alien encounters, men in black encounters, black eyed kid encounters, and you're holding out on us. And I just want to put it out there and tell you and beg you for Corinne, for Corinne's birthday, for me, selfishly, Send us those stories for Sabrina's birthday. Sabrina's birthday is in a few weeks. So let's prep a lot of alien material for that. Please. I need them. Need them all. Okay. So this is an alien story and it's from Allie and it's called aliens while pregnant? Question mark. Hey ghouls. Love the podcast. I'm listening to encounters by 73 and you're telling the story about your moderator's ghost experience while pregnant. I've emailed you in the past, but hearing this made me feel inclined to email you again. I will preface this with, I was 24 years old at the time, and I was pregnant, and I have never had sleep paralysis, and so far, postpartum, I've never had it again, and my son is now almost two. One night, I was fast asleep while about six months pregnant, and I started to stir because I was uncomfortable, and I realized I couldn't move. I tried to reach for my husband, who usually sleeps next to me, but nothing. It was dark and I felt strapped down and as I started to panic, a disorienting flickering light started flashing from the ceiling. There above me, I saw multiple solid black figures surrounding the table and leaning over me. The best way to describe it is like when a movie shows someone waking up in a hospital bed and the camera is in their point of view, but I couldn't see any features from the people or these beings. I don't know if it's because they were backlit by this flickering light or because they were solid black mass. A voice boomed around me saying what I think was, we are the first rain, and demanding that I accept them. I screamed, no, and let me go. And they continued to repeat, we are the first rain. We are the first rain. Louder (gasps) and louder. And the light got more and more disorienting until all of a sudden I felt myself losing consciousness. I awoke in a start in my bed, sobbing, And my husband woke up confused. He said he heard nothing and didn't feel me stir until I jumped up crying. I've never heard anyone have a similar sleep paralysis encounter. Was it a weird pregnancy dream, an alien abduction, something darker? I don't know. All I know is that I've never been happier to wake up in my own bed. Thanks for reading and feel free to share. See you on the other side, Allie.
0: Oh my goodness. I don't know what to make of that. And also, speaking of aliens to trust or not to trust, I don't know. Just be- coming in and being like, I am your queen. Like, that's creepy. Like, we are the first reign. That's like, we are uh, like the elite you follow. Yeah. Us. I'm like, I wasn't aware that I was a part of a monarchy here. It's so crazy, though. It really creepy. So creepy. It's like they're vampires.
1: Like, you need to accept us. Like, let us in. no. Ooh, it's all just so creepy and unsettling. Aliens, let me tell you, they got to work on their bedside manner.
0: <laughs> I wish everyone could see your face right now because you're so serious and so like, <laughs> uh, I am fed up with their bedside manner.
1: I am. I am going to have some strong words with them when they eventually abduct me. And I'm going to say, you know, hey, here's the thing. I've been preaching for years that I've wanted to be abducted. And you do it, and here I am, and you strapped me down. I'm here willingly. Let's be friends, be nice to me, and uh,
0: I'll give you what you want. Just explain what you're doing as you do it so it's a little less scary. It's like getting a shot. Like, count to three. Don't just surprise me with the needle.
1: Yeah. Or just zap my brain now, put me to sleep, and then so I don't know anything. You know? But if if you're going to, like, make someone remember this whole experience, don't be freaking weird. Right.
0: And, like, we don't want to assume that all aliens are like this. We understand that some alien species or just some aliens themselves might be different and more misbehaved than others. But, like, spread the rumor. Gossip amongst yourself. Let everyone know that everyone needs to be a little bit kinder.
1: Yeah. Just, like,
0: I don't know, just put a little bit more effort in, you know? <laughs> just, just I mean, it, it's not enough that you've created the technology and have the abilities that you do. Try harder. I am going to start an etiquette course for aliens. <laughs> Everyone's like, you're the one that turns Earth around instead of it being like the shit show where like outlaw aliens run to. It's like, oh, you're going to Earth? Oh, are you taking Sabrina's etiquette course? I
1: have the most sought after course on Earth. Are you doing the accelerated four week or are you taking the 12 week? How do I sign up for this career? I <laughs> I'll
0: support you. I'll provide the the napkins. The Soviets. Oh, I'm gonna start financing this bad boy. I'll, oh, oh, yeah. I've always wanted to uh to invest. So I'll I'll be an investor. Fifty dollars for you. <laughs> I told you I'd buy the napkins. Oh, thank you so much. What were we talking about? <laughs> What's your story? I think I found the one Men in Black email in our inbox. Yes, this is from Heidi. And it is called My Paranormal Mom. Greetings, coastesses. I'm currently binging your podcast, and it's the best part of my day. You two are eerily delightful. I love that. Eerily delightful. Wow. That's the best compliment. If I was getting a tattoo, if I wasn't afraid of needles, I would get that written on my wrist. Hey, you came with me to get my tattoo done, remember? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't remember until the moment, and then I remember. (laughs) I dressed up for it. I wore a leather jacket because I wanted to feel like I fit in. You, you did. You looked like you did. I thought I looked cool. You did. You look like how did. I dressed up for your tattoo appointment. Thank you for looking good for me. As I rate this, it's Mother's Day weekend, and I'm inspired to write you two about my mom. Born on the spring equinox under a new moon, mom has always been highly intuitive and sensitive to otherworldly phenomena. She often has prophetic dreams, and has read tarot for about 20 years, never advertising or accepting pay. People just frequently seek her services. Strange occurrences have been a staple throughout her entire life. For a little backstory, we live in a southern Ohio town called Portsmouth, which sits right on the river and is known for the Indian mound displaying prominently in our local park. My mom has always been very interested in the mounds, history, aliens, and all things paranormal. I can't tell you all of her experiences, as there is simply not enough time, but I will give you some highlights. As a child, mom grew up right outside of Portsmouth. One of her stories that stands out to me was one that happened late in the 1960s. You may have heard of the Mothman legends. It's something our tri-state area is known for. Mom was a child during that time, and her dad was at the hospital for a few weeks recovering from a serious work injury. Mom remembers returning home with her mother and siblings, six kids total at the time, after visiting him. They lived in a densely wooded area on top of a hill and due to the snow, couldn't get their car up the driveway and so they had to walk. Mom says that she remembers looking to the night sky as they went and asking her mother why there were two moons. Her mother commanded her not to look at it. Mom says that the next thing she remembers was waking up between her siblings They were all lined up, laying horizontally across one of their beds. (gasps) After that night, they began receiving frequent phone calls late in the evening from a man that they didn't know, who wanted to speak to each child and would ask strange questions. Mom said the connection was fuzzy, and though they spoke English, it sounded stiffly proper and unnatural. It never made sense to my mom why her mother, a strict and pragmatic Christian woman, allowed them to talk to these strangers. If you know anything about the Mothman legends, you've heard of the Men in Black, strangers sporting suits and sunglasses with stiff, unhumanly mannerisms who acted as census takers, gathering information from households. Many people suspected the Men in Black to be damage control, there to clean up memories of those who had experienced encounters. Mom and her brother share these same memories and discuss them often, but the other siblings mostly won't discuss it. Her brother has been susceptible to paranormal events throughout his own life too, including being followed home with his girlfriend by a, quote, second moon, and both of them losing a chunk of time. He and my mom both believe that they've been abducted and have suffered from strange health problems throughout their lives since. Some other strange things that happened during mom's childhood— After her brother swears he saw something land in the woods out back, they later found a scorched-looking circle of earth in the same area. Once while walking to her grandmother's, mom saw a group of people in the clearing in those same woods sitting cross-legged in a circle and levitating off the ground. Spooky. I just got chills. That's so scary. Oh my god, I would probably just die right there afraid. That reminds me of the witch
1: so much. Yes,
0: so much. She also used to see tiny creatures go under the closet in one of the bedrooms of the house. Mom's dad, ever a picker, purchased a nearby property to renovate. It was a manor complete with a carriage house. Witnesses claimed to see lights and sounds coming from it at night that would disappear as you approached. While working on renovations, Mom's dad and her brother, who was now a teenager, became too frustrated and afraid to continue as bad things kept happening when they tried to work. The other kids were too scared to even go there. Her dad sold it and even had to get rid of the shutters that he took from there to decorate his shed back home. They wouldn't remain closed even when nailed shut. Occurrences continue throughout my mom's life and in our area, giving her many theories about our town, lineage, and the connection between Indians, aliens, and ancient civilizations. Now for my own paranormal experience. When I was at round three, I complained of the dark man in our house. Only our house, never anywhere else, I could only describe him as bigger than Daddy. Mom asked me questions about him, and I said he talked to me, but I didn't understand his words more than once. I gave her a phrase pronouncing it, Yu young gua She said I demonstrated this stature with which was tall, intimidating, and held high after one severely bad episode. Mom heard me screaming. My older sister thundered down the stairs, stopping halfway as she'd forgot to grab me in her panic. I was screaming, he's here! My sister was ghostly white and confirmed that even though she couldn't see the dark man, she could feel him. Mom had enough of my suffering and carried me back upstairs to see if he was still there. She said that when I finally opened my eyes, I confirmed he was. Mom told me that we were going to tell him to leave as he was not welcome here, and we would then pray that he wouldn't bother me anymore. And so we did. She said that after a few minutes, she felt me relax in her arms, and when I finally opened my eyes again, I proclaimed that he was gone and not coming back. I never mentioned him again after that and have no recollection of that experience whatsoever. Mom believed the dark man was an Indian chief. She had many theories of why he was there, including my brother bringing a Ouija board into the house, or because we lived only a couple blocks from the mound and that my sister attended the elementary school across from it, which was built on top of its deconstructed twin mound. Mom and dad would later become renovators and caretakers to this mound's shelter house, which they opened to the public as a seasonal youth program. After some research, she found a phrase similar to the one that I would repeat, which loosely translated to, Who are your people? Mm. (gasps) Oh, chills again! Later, through her genealogy studies, Mom learned that we were direct descendants of Jenny Wiley. She was a woman captured. They killed her four children, plus the baby she birthed while in captivity. She was held enslaved for 11 months until an escape route came to her in her dream. She crossed the state of Kentucky and a river, returning home. We're descendants of the first child that she birthed upon returning home. That's all I'll load on you for now. And there's plenty more for another time. Keep up
1: the creepy work, ghouls. See you on the other side. Heidi. Wow. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Her mom's first story of waking up with her siblings, they're all lying horizontally across the bed. That is so creepy. It is so strange. And I know that Heidi was saying maybe Mothman related, but it does sound very abduction-like. Yes. And so I can't even imagine waking up being like, what is happening? Why are we all lying like this? I feel like that's,
0: that's a common thing where oftentimes people are placed back, but something's just slightly off where mm-hmm. they're clued into like, I didn't put myself here or I wasn't sitting in this seat the last time.
1: Right. Like when I lost my memory, I was in the other seat. Like there's just enough off. And also a big group of people experiencing it all at once. It's not like one person woke up and it was weird. It was all of them and the second moon, and then for her mom's
0: brother to later be followed by
1: the second moon again. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, like, why her family and why not me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Jealous. I am. No, but uh, but truly, what I mean, like, what I'm saying, though, is, like, why her family? We're, like, Or is everyone in that town getting targeted and they're just not talking about it because they're all getting these weird phone calls? Well, it could be, too. I mean, the fact
0: that the second moon like that spaceship or whatever it is Mm -hmm. followed her family it makes me think that it is some sort of longitudinal study like a family or a person gets marked and then for the rest of their lives infrequently or frequently they're revisited by this creature and so perhaps somewhere along their lineage or just they were chosen at random they were going to continue to be visited by these aliens wow I'm also very curious about these creatures, that these small figures that would go underneath the door of this one room, and also the levitating circle of people. I need way more information on both of those. Yeah. Heidi, if you have any, please tell us. I can't imagine being so incredibly open and sensitive to the paranormal that you experience every single side of it like this. Right. Which, to your point, when you just said, is it the whole town that's experiencing something? I wonder if the town where they saw the majority of the stuff when her mom was growing up, I wonder if this was maybe similar to ley lines, which we've talked about Mm, with UFOs. mm -hmm. I wonder if there's some sort of like energy or portal or magnetism to this one spot where it's like one of the hubs
1: of paranormal comings and goings. And it does sound like her mom kind of dedicated her energies to studying some of that stuff and trying to figure out why. So Heidi let's set up a phone conference with your mom you and your mom
0: yeah can you go on our instagram live
1: <laughs> yeah seriously we we want to see we want to watch we want to know everything wow so fascinating all right i already gave my plea but i'll give it briefly again if you have any encounters with aliens ghosts men in black mothman any cryptid creature supernatural being please email that experience to us at twogirlsoneghostpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
0: We have a variety of ways to support. You can rate and review us on iTunes. You can tell everybody. We have social media you can follow or join the Facebook group or read a book with the Two Girls, One
1: Ghost book club. And you can also buy merch. Represent. Represent. We have some thank yous to say. First, thank you to Eric Foster and Max at Upfire Digital for editing our podcast every week. We're so, so grateful for you. And we will see you on the other side. Very spooky.